very good morning to you. This is James Ross with Money Talk. It's 16 minutes past eight. And let's uh, welcome our guests for today, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Ecognosis Advisory. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Good morning to you. Uh, nice to have you on the show. And let's also say hello to Catherine Young, who is Investment Director at Fidelity International. Good morning, Catherine. Morning, James. Thanks uh, both. And, uh, you know, let's kick off uh, with a, a quick look uh, at the interest rate situation. The Bank of England uh, holding steady after the uh, uh, Fed's uh, similar decision yesterday. Catherine, any surprises there from uh, the Bank of England? No, and I think when we look across the world with all these global central banks, we're still in this holding pattern in terms of really you know, monitoring the data, especially when it comes to inflation, before we see any significant moves. Andrew, your thoughts? Yeah, my thoughts remain absolutely the same. And Andrew Mars, looking down to central banks in Earth, he will be bursting into laughter. Two of them uh, are keeping interest rates high, and that is the European Union and the European Central Bank and, uh, and the Fed. The People's Bank of China is actually indifferent on its interest rates policy. There isn't really any. I mean, they're not saying we're going to cut in order to support the economy. Instead, they offer quantitative measures in terms of uh, reducing the reserve requirements. And the uh, Bank of Japan says we're staying with negative interest rates for the time being. <laughs> so what are the directions of interest rates in the global economy? The answer is, is I don't know. Ask me one question, ask me one question, and I'll give you an answer. <laughs> Well, of course, it's uh, it's uh, big tech and um, Amazon and uh, Meta uh, and Apple, which have been driving things uh, in the U.S. markets today. Uh, big tech still on the up, uh, Catherine. Uh, seems, um, you know, good results pretty much all around, although China uh, for iPhones, not so good for Apple. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and don't forget, consumers in China have choice in terms of brands and, and the local brands are really starting to increase their market share. Uh, across a number of segments when we look at the con consumption story. So it's, an, it's interesting and also from a supply side, you're seeing a lot of the Chinese companies also ramping up with technology, whether it's memory, whether it's AI. Um, automation is, is huge in China in terms of the emphasis and the automation sector in terms of robotics. I mean, very high barriers of entry when you look at you know, the other players such as the, the companies from Germany and Japan. Are we going to see, Catherine, the, you know, continuance of China looking at uh, its own manufacturing and supply? We're seeing, of course, the phones. You know, we've heard in the last few months about uh, new Chinese planes. Is that going to be continuing? Yeah, definitely. And, and what you're seeing now with many Chinese companies, again, whether it's Internet, uh, consumption, whether it's industrials, materials, is they have growth or growth expectations from demand in China. And then they're also accumulating customers overseas. So it's a two pronged approach in terms of their growth strategy. Uh, but nevertheless, things not so great in in certain sectors, notably uh, the property sector. Um, Evergrande uh, still, you know, that's going to uh, rustle on for quite some time, uh, one suspects. And, uh, you know, property generally, Andrew, not uh, looking at any chance of recovery anytime soon, do you think? Well, uh, it depends where you're looking at. Of course, United States uh, aimed in... Uh, I'm meaning in China well. particularly. Uh, in my, you know, well, in China, we just had uh, two pretty grim reports. And that was the 100 biggest uh, uh, developers uh, just produced one more decline of a raw decline of sales um, during December. And if you look overall their performance for the last 12 months, out of those 12 months, only four months were increases 
in sales. The rest of them were all decreases in sales. My favorite little index, I'm not saying that sarcastically or sadistically, and that is uh, prices of new homes in 70 big and small Chinese uh, cities for 21 months has been actually shrinking, not just falling. But falling is perfectly okay. You go from 10% to 9%. No, no, no. It's actually shrinking. So, and of course, we had ever granted, <laughs> ever granted. So as we look down the road, Andrew, in you know, 12 to 18 months or, or beyond, you know, is this decline in the property market going to continue you know, as we look in that sort of long-term zone? Unfortunately, I'm going to sound like an economist. depends where you're looking at. In the case of Hong Kong, as long as we're not having decreases in American interest rates, the answer is yes. In the case of China, it's a completely different issue. Okay, it is not a matter that the Chinese simply had very high interest rates and that's squashed. The, the, the property sector is a complete issue of uh, bookkeeping, stroke, cleaning uh, balance sheets, as opposed to a really systematic issue of property sector going down. So the answer is, is depends, depends, depends. In Hong Kong, the issues I'm afraid with Mr. Powell saying, forget about March, we're looking out forward to something else. Actually, my own view is we're not going to see any cuts in interest rates, even by the middle of June, or by the middle of the summer. So in the case of Hong Kong, yeah, it's, it's bad news, unfortunately. And bad news uh, translates into negative equity as well. That's uh, you know a, a phrase that we've not heard uh, so much in the last decade or so, is it? But uh, is that a serious problem, do you think? Uh, in terms of the individual persons, uh, sounds very cruel here. Is yes, of course, it's bad news. In terms of the banks, no, because the banks in Hong Kong are notoriously conservative and have very large cushions against uh, the mortgages they lend to. So I don't think the banks are going to find a problem with uh, having in their hands bad debts. Okay, but of course, individuals will, and that reflects overall in the, in the health of the retail sector, on the private retail sector of property, yes. Catherine, are you tracking the, the property sector, particularly uh, in Hong Kong and China, and what are you seeing? As, uh, you know, are things as grim out there as, uh, as, we're, as, as we're hearing about? I agree with Andrew in terms of, you know, countries, uh, China's a very big country, so we're so used to seeing a, a one-way or broad-based recovery, and, and China's not going through that in terms of the market returns, in terms of the property sector, in, in terms of the economy. So when we look at the property market, you know, again, as Andrew pointed out, it's, it's, a, it's a crisis of confidence more so than a crisis financially. So property developers were just not completing the projects that citizens had paid for. So we're seeing the state-owned enterprises really come in. There's a lot of consolidation. And, and whilst we've seen property falls, let's say about 30 40% for the year, um, when you look at a couple of the state-owned enterprise developers, they've actually seen an increase in sales. So this consolidation is going to continue. You're probably going to see other private developers in terms of potential defaults. But the sector itself will be supported uh, by the state-owned enterprises. Uh, turning back to Hong Kong specifically, and, you know, I guess there's some good news coming out. Retail sales up 7.8% uh, year on year uh, in December and, you know, some good news on the GDP front. Andrew, you know, what are your thoughts about the GDP? Um, you know, is that significant or is that just, you know, getting back to where we were? Look, I have to preface this because, God, it sounds as if I'm insisting on taking away the passport and I'm uh, quite sure that it rains over our parade. <laughs> Look, Hong Kong has been my home for 37 years. I ache and I paint, but 
Okay, when I look at the numbers, I'm not going to tell you this was good. In the case of the GDP growth, it was fine, 3.2%, <laughs> against literally a minus 3.2 or so mm. the previous year mm. from a very low base. Mm. Ditto also are retail sales. Retail sales, okay, they were quite nice for December, 7.8%. Yeah, but the same December numbers in the previous year was just about 1%. Once again, until we clear out the negatives of the year 22, Okay, year 23 is going to give you misleading numbers. In other words, nice, strong recoveries against very low base effects. So I'm looking forward to going into 24 so as to turn the page over. There's no base effects. Now we we are flat. You know, we only have numbers, and it's no good saying, oh, spectacular increase in, in retail sales. Yeah, against negatives the previous year. Is it a case of uh, believing our own publicity here in uh, Hong Kong, Andrew? Well, you know, what do we need to do? Well, in a way, the good news is very little, because, for example, in the case of tourism, we just have the numbers for the whole of the year, a million, <coughs> said he clearly his, his throat, back 17, 18, 19, that's year 2017, 19, the numbers were 60 million. In other words, yeah, we're doing very nicely, but it is half the amount we used to. And this, of course, does impact retail sales and does impact indirectly the property sector in terms of what uh, the hotels are doing. So, unfortunately, in the case of tourism, there is very little we can do because 75% of all the tourists are mainland Chinese. And, uh, you know, it's no good saying we're going to have Taylor Swift and Beyoncé coming in, which is very good. <laughs> I think it is, it is uh, you know, the, the government is doing its best. I am not a critic that a lot more can be done because I just can't see how you can convince people to come okay, if uh, our own people here in Hong Kong are spending their money across the border. Well, some people around the world think uh, Taylor Swift can fix anything, I think. But uh, um, yeah. <laughs> turning to other matters... Uh, oh, boy, that was a bad example. Okay, please, please uh, erase it. Erase it out of, the, of, of your memory stick. Okay. Uh, I mean, turning more generally, Catherine, to, to other things, uh, you know, where, where are you looking at the moment for, for your clients? You know, what, you know, what, are, the, what are the sectors that are, are attractive uh, to you at the moment? You know, we're seeing a lot of opportunities across sectors. So... You can see energy companies trading at higher multiples than well-known consumer companies, staples as well as discretionary. Mm. So in this kind of environment where you could see further volatility, dips economic data-wise, uh, geopolitical tensions, it's about companies who can deliver earnings, who have that visibility, who reward minority shareholders through income, so dividends, and have a consistent dividend policy because that acts as somewhat of a cushion. And really, you know, those those leaders in the market that are going to continue to thrive after the economy picks up. Are there many of those companies uh, out there? Is it is that and is it easy to find those companies? Believe it or not, things don't seem as dire when you go into the mainland. And the companies, even the companies that were hampered by regulatory changes, they've either reinvented themselves, they've looked for other growth streams. As I mentioned, so many companies have got this two-pronged approach in terms of domestic as, as well as international. The area that we tend to stay away from are those overhyped segments where, you know, there are low barriers of entry. You're seeing a lot of capital flow into them. Uh, the risk-reward isn't that attractive because of what you're paying for these names. It's a bit like the U.S. with all those big tech names. You're paying very, very expensive multiples for potential returns. Andrew, sectors that, uh, that are attractive to you at the moment? 
Yeah, this is uh, completely off the wall, uh, James, and I make no apologies. You know that I'm a huge fan of the defense sector, which is unbelievably politically incorrect. And now with the Americans and the Europeans giving more money, uh, more aid uh, to Ukraine, all this means a lot more money is going to be spent on buying bullets. Okay, and the defense sector has been doing extremely well, but it's a big no-no when it comes to institutional investors, particularly in terms of mm. ESG. My new toy is, of course, is uh, with the likelihood that Trump is going to be the next uh, uh, Republican candidate, and also possibly might be re-elected, is this, uh, I'm making a list of what my clients should be buying under a Trump presidency. And that also is a nightmare of politically incorrect places. Okay. Okay, well, we'll watch that with interest. Andrew Ferris uh, is CEO of Ecognosis Advisory. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us. And also uh, thank you to Catherine Young, who is Investment Director at Fidelity International. Well, still to come on the show, we'll take a look at what consumers need to know about simulated gambling games. Carolyn Wright will be joined by Phoenix Lai, Research and Survey Officer at the Consumer Council. Plus, we'll be getting a view from Australia with Adam Dawes, Senior Investment Advisor at Shaw & Partners. Uh, to the markets, the S&P ASX 200 is up 1% at 7,660. The Nikkei 225 up 4 tenths of 1% at 36,148. The Kospi is up 1% at 2,570. And Hang Seng Futures looking to a market open up half a percent. Uh, to the weather, mainly cloudy with sunny periods. Coastal fog this morning, the maximum temperature around 25 degrees. Light winds becoming moderate easterly winds, occasionally fresh with one or two late light rain patches later. The outlook uh, windier tomorrow, still humid on Sunday slightly cooler in the following couple of days. It's 21 Celsius now, 92% relative humidity at the observatory. It's 8.30. And with the news headlines, here's Martin. The United States has imposed sanctions on some Jewish settlers who've carried out violence against Palestinian civilians in the occupied West Bank. President Biden signed an executive order targeting four people. He said violence in the West Bank had reached an intolerable level. The State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said the actions of the settlers were unacceptable. The State Department is today imposing financial sanctions on four Israeli nationals for their destabilizing acts in the West Bank. Today's action follows on the step we took in December to impose visa restrictions on dozens of individuals for contributing to violence and instability in the West Bank. There is no justification for extremist violence against civilians, whatever their national origin, ethnicity or religion. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has said the 54 billion US dollar aid package for Ukraine agreed by EU leaders sends a very strong message to President Putin of Russia. The deal follows weeks of wrangling with the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who had vetoed the package in December. Ms. von der Leyen said EU's military assistance to Ukraine had reached an unprecedented level, but more was coming. More tanks, helicopters, air defense systems, missiles, and of course more ammunition. The European industry, defense industry, has already increased its production capacity by 40%, and this is still growing. So we will be signing the contracts in a matter of weeks, and we're working with the member states to get that ammunition to Ukraine. U.S. officials say plans have been approved for a series of strikes against Iranian personnel and facilities inside Iraq and Syria. They said the action will be carried out over a number of days. Washington has been preparing to hit back at Iranian-backed militias after three U.S. troops were killed in a drone strike in Jordan. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue is in Washington. 
Some Republicans have called for strikes on targets inside Iran, but the indications at this stage are that the Biden administration isn't prepared to go that far. It is, however, suggesting that Iranian facilities and personnel assisting the militias in Iraq and Syria will be attacked over a number of days, depending on cloud cover. That reference to the weather is designed to show that military planners are trying to avoid any collateral damage in terms of civilian casualties. Local officials in Turkey say police have secured the release of seven workers held hostage by a gunman at the plant of an American multinational company in Istanbul. The local government t governor told reporters that police staged a raid at the site of the U.S. cosmetics giant Procter & Gamble nine hours into the siege when a lone gunman took a bathroom break. No one was injured and the gunman has been detained unharmed. A gene editing tra technique has transformed the lives of people with a hereditary disorder that causes painful and unpredictable swelling. Angioedema, which can block airways and sometimes prove fatal, is thought to affect 50,000 people worldwide. Symptoms disappeared in all but one patient in a small group treated in Britain, New Zealand and the Netherlands. And in sports news, British Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton is to leave Mercedes at the end of the current season to join Ferrari in 2025. Hamilton has won six of his seven world titles driving for Mercedes. Hamilton, who's 39, has been offered a multi-year contract at Ferrari. Here's the BBC's Laura Scott. This is seismic news in the world of Formula One and indeed the world of sport. Lewis Hamilton has been with Mercedes for over a decade and they've had extraordinary success together. Hamilton has won six world titles with Mercedes. The last of those was in November 2020. So yes, it is a shock move to see him leave Mercedes because he had signed a contract only a few months ago that was for this season and next season and he's cutting that short. But perhaps the writing was on the wall when you saw that he struggled for success over the last few years. The World Health Organization is warning that the number of cancer cases globally will rise steadily in the coming decades. It forecasts a 77% increase by the middle of this century. The BBC's Hugh Morgan has this report. Experts at the WHO say the increase reflects a growing and ageing global population, with tobacco, alcohol, obesity and air pollution playing major roles. And while developed countries are expected to record the greatest increases in case numbers, it's in less developed countries, which have fewer resources available to tackle cancer, where the biggest proportional rise will be seen. The International Agency for Research on Cancer says around one in five people are likely to develop cancer in their lifetimes. And that's the news from RTHK. Yeah. Well, good morning. It is Friday, the 2nd of February, and this is James Ross. In a few minutes, Caroline will find out what you need to know about simulated gambling games uh, with Phoenix Lai, research and survey officer at the Consumer Council. And then after that, Adam Dawes, senior investment advisor at Shore & Partners, will join us for his view from Australia. But first in the headlines, Apple sales and profit have beaten estimates, but its China sales missed analyst targets. Amazon reports fourth quarter results that saw its stock jump more than 8%. And Meta Platforms announced revenues up 25% in the last quarter. 
In other news, Deutsche Bank says it'll cut 3,500 jobs for 4% of its workforce. Headline inflation in the Eurozone eased slightly in January. The Bank of England has held interest rates steady overnight. South Korea's exports rose 18% in January. And Hong Kong's retail sales rose 7.8% year-on-year in December. And leading local banks, HSBC, Bank of China and Standard Chartered, are keeping their lending and saving rates steady. That's after the Hong Kong Monetary Authority decided to retain its base rate at 5.75%, in line with an interest rate decision in the United States. Chloe Feng reports. The authority's announcement was in line with the U.S. Federal Reserve's decision to keep its rates unchanged. The HKMA said that, in response to the Fed's decision, future interest rate decisions will depend on incoming data, the evolving outlook and the balance of risks. In a statement, the authority said that it's uncertain when the Fed will begin to cut rates. Thus, the future remains uncertain. It also said the high interest rate environment may last for some time. The authority warned that the public must carefully assess and manage the risks involved when buying property or taking out mortgages. But it assured that the SER's financial market remains stable and is operating smoothly. The city's cost of borrowing remains at its highest level since December in 2007. The authority last raised its base rate in July of last year. The HKMA has followed the Fed's monetary policy in lockstep since 1983 to maintain the local currency's pack to the U.S. dollar under Hong Kong's linked exchange rate system. The government's labor advisers have agreed to relax the definition of a continuous contract. It should give workers, it should give more workers access to employment benefits. Uh, right now, people working at the same firm for 18 hours a week for four weeks are considered to be on such contracts. The Labor Advisory Board agreed to lower the eligible hours from 72 to 68. Unionist lawmaker Kingsley Wong said this was good news. This can also stop employers from evading extending labor protection to workers by cutting hours. For example, under 418, employers often let the employees work 20, 30 hours in the first three weeks, but it would be less than 18 hours in the fourth week. Retail sector lawmaker Peter Shu, who chairs the Liberal Party, says the new arrangement will surely add to business costs, particularly for small to medium-sized firms. But Simon Wong, who heads the Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades, says he thinks restaurants will find the new scheme even better. I don't see there's a big difference between these two schemes because we have been running the 418 scheme for a long time and then 468 scheme uh, actually give us a more flexible arrangement for the staffing. So I think it would be even better. In overseas news, South Korea's exports rose again in January as a rebound in sales to China and the biggest surge in chip shipments in six years gave a boost to the economy. The positive impulse from the data was reflected in a survey on South Korea's factory activity, which last month expanded for the first time in over a year on improving demand in key export markets. In the biggest percentage increase since May 2022, exports rose 18% year-on-year to $55 billion in January, compared to 5% in December. Talking of Taylor Swift, as we were a few moments ago, TikTok has removed music by stars, including Taylor Swift. The weekend 
and Olivia Rodrigo from videos after a row with their record label Universal. A licensing agreement between TikTok and the label expired on Wednesday and a new deal couldn't be reached. Universal said TikTok wanted to pay a fraction of the rate other social media sites do for access to its songs. TikTok accused Universal of presenting, quote, a false narrative and rhetoric. So what's going on? The BBC's Stephanie Prentice has the details. This is a good old-fashioned fight over cash. So Universal Music, they're going back and forth with TikTok over getting paid for their artists. That includes Taylor Swift, Drake, Adele, Harry Styles, all hugely popular with TikTok demographics. And Universal has laid out its argument in an open letter. It says there are three critical issues causing the breakdown of this negotiation. One is pretty obvious, so getting paid for artists and songwriters, then protection from what it calls the harmful effects of AI and also online safety. Where it gets more sticky seems to be the alleged tactics used. So Universal claim that TikTok attempts to give them a worse deal than the one they currently have, then met their request to negotiate with what the letter calls indifference, then intimidation. It says TikTok tried to bully them by saying it would remove the music of developing artists. So those smaller artists, the Universal wants to promote and just keep those global big hitters. TikTok refute all of this. It says Universal is putting greed above the interests of their artists by walking away from this platform that could put them in front of billions of users globally every day. Let's take a quick listen to Mark Mulligan. He works for Media Research and he's a music analyst. There are billions of dollars of worth of royalties out there, but not that much of it is currently on social media. Most of those royalties are on streaming services like Spotify, etc. We're beginning to see the rise of social media as being something, a completely different part of the music business. TikTok thinks it is more valuable to, you know, Universal's getting more value out of it by promoting its artists. And Universal thinks TikTok's getting more value out of its artists. So we are, this is really sort of a, a growing pain of a new sector of the business. Hong Kong retail sales rose 7.8% year on year in December to just over $36 billion, uh, driven by sales of jewellery, watches, gifts and other consumer goods. The increase, though, was about half that seen in November. For the whole of 2023, retail sales stood at $406 billion Hong Kong dollars, a rise of about six. 16% compared with 2022. Looking ahead this year, authorities say they expect a recovery in inbound tourism and rising household income to continue to support retailers. However, the uh, Hong Kong Retail Management Association Executive Director Bond Law has warned the outlook may still be grim this year. The association is prudent about the outlook for 2024. We expect retail sales to experience a single-digit or even low double-digit decline in the first half of this year. To address the challenge, our industry will focus on strengthening the experiential shopping elements. The government support is needed to lead the cross-sectoral collaboration among different stakeholders, such as tourism, transport, and the catering industry, to create synergy. We also hope that the government will continue to organize even more mega-events to lighten the atmosphere for the whole city.
Good morning. It's uh, Money Talk with James Wells coming up to 16 minutes to nine. In your money today, Carolyn Wright learns about simulated gambling games and the money you can lose on them. Uh, Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. In its latest choice report, the Consumer Council looks at issues around simulated gaming apps. And I'm joined now by Phoenix Light, who is a research and survey officer at the Consumer Council, to find out a little more. Thank you for joining me again, Phoenix. Morning, Carolyn. Thanks for having me again. So first off, can you tell me a little bit about simulated gambling games? What are they and how do they work? Yeah, um, the Consumer Council selected and surveyed six simulated gambling games, including slot machines, mahjong, poker, etc., from two app stores last year. While simulated gambling games are very similar to uh, real money gambling in terms of gameplay and audiovisual effects, the main difference is that you can only use in-app currencies to gamble for the simulated games. Um, although you can buy such currencies with real money, you can redeem or cash out the winnings under normal circumstances, whereas real money gambling, of course, offers you a chance to win money in the real-life setting. So this is how simulated games work and differ from real money gambling. So what tactics are being used by the developers of these games to lure consumers in and and why could they be dangerous for them? We see that there are mainly four tactics to attract players to uh, keep playing and paying for these simulated games. The first one would be regular lock-in and play incentives, such as daily check-in rewards, uh, free lucky draws, daily quests, etc., to encourage players logging in regularly and investing more time in playing these games. The second one would be first-time purchase and time-limited offers. A large number of these uh, offers could be found in all these games to entice players into making in-app purchases. And uh, all these games that we surveyed also provide VIP memberships, where the membership levels were largely determined by the total amount spent on in-app purchases. According to our estimation, it could cost up to over $2 million to reach the max membership level in one of these games which is very staggering. And um, the third one would be uh, social features and leaderboards. Some games will include functions for players to share their winning moments onto their social media pages when they hit a jackpot. And when players could also um, receive free gifts when they invite friends to play along. As for leaderboards, they will allow players to compete with each other to obtain higher ranks and therefore better prices and rewards. And the fourth and final one would be paid services and uh, lucky draws. A wide range of paid for services, in-app currencies, in-game items and loot boxes were available in all these simulator games. And their price could range from $8 to over $3,000 each. Some games even claim that they would include physical gifts, such as uh, smartphones or gift cards in their paid lucky draws. Since all these tactics uh, aim to cultivate consumers' habit of playing regularly and lure them into making inner purchases, they are especially dangerous to young players who might be intellectually immature. And what's more is that um, a number of studies have also shown that these simulated games could produce psychological effects on players, young or old, making them more likely to uh, engage in real life and real money gambling or even developing gambling disorder in the future. So it sounds like it, it can be very easy to get lured in and, and accidentally overspend. Are there ways in which you can ensure you don't overspend on these in-app purchases? And just as another comparison with real-life gambling, what are the actual chances of winning compared to a, a regular gambling, standard gambling game? Yeah, um, we would advise consumers who enjoy playing these uh, simulated games to uh, sell a budget as 
spend more money does not necessarily mean or guarantee that they would be more likely to win or obtain the desired items from the boxes. And they should also be aware of psychological tricks because time-limited offers, for example, often make use of time pressure to time players into spending more on uh, in-app purchases without thinking carefully. And if available, check the odds of winning for the boxes. This might be helpful in maintaining the expectations and also avoid overspending on in-app purchases at the same time. And consumers are also reminded that in the event of a losing streak, the odds of winning in simulated games might be elevated in order to make the games seem more rewarding and exciting. So uh, players should bear in mind that being successful in these simulated games does not actually mean that they will also make a profit in real-life gambling. Gosh, okay. Now, one other thing that you said there earlier was about how easy it is for younger people to end up finding themselves using these kind of games. How well are the developers doing at preventing particularly underage users from playing? And are they adopting any measures to help younger players understand what they're doing? Yeah, unfortunately, um, our study found that the six games we surveyed did not verify the age of their players and um, users could enter the games directly without registering an account, showing a lack of gatekeeping. Regarding age limit, there were also inconsistencies uh, found between the terms of service and the information listed on the app stores, which was another proof that the uh, developers had not taken sufficient measures to prevent minors from playing these games. But however, uh, parents uh, could still make use of the parenting controls offered by the app stores to limit the uh, downloading of apps of certain ratings. This might help uh, prevent their children from playing simulated gambling games, which are targeted for adults only. And that's very good advice there on uh, parents making sure they've got those settings correct and making sure they keep their kids safe. Now, what would you suggest around ordinance to help strengthen consumer protection and make these developers uh, abide by rules more carefully? Yeah, it appears to us that um, the existing gambling ordinance is not fully effective in targeting a wide range of online gambling behaviors such as simulated gambling games. Therefore, we would advocate for the government to review existing legislation and refer to overseas regulatory regimes in introducing specific laws to target online gambling, under gambling, and in addition, more regulatory mechanisms for games with gambling features such as loot boxes, and at the same time, mandating the listing of uh, the odds of winning. Besides legislation, game developers should also consider adding a voluntarily withdrawal function from in-app purchases for players and uh, enhancing the measures in verifying the age of players so as to fulfill their corporate responsibilities and to better protect consumers' interests. So it sounds like there's lots of things to bear in mind when you are considering playing one of these games. Thank you so very much for explaining all of that today. That's Phoenix Lai, who is Research and Survey Officer at the Consumer Council. Thank you. Thank you, Phoenix, and uh, thank you, Carolyn.